Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see most of you. This guy just called me Gramps. <clears throat> That's okay. I'm looking forward to it. It was a blessing to hear from you, Celeste. Where are you? There you are today. And uh, to hear from Barnabas last week as well. And so helpful for us to remember that <clears throat> our ministry here is not just all about us. We are not consumers when we come to church. We are worshipers, and we are contributors to the, the worldwide work of the body of Christ and uh, the gospel. And it's a good reminder um, as we come to class and hear from missionaries that are doing that work that we are about that as well. Let me ask you, if you were to be the leading spokesperson for Christianity and you were going to write a letter to the most powerful city in the world, what issues would you focus on? What would your main theme be? Um, it's interesting that social reform played very little part in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, instead, he summed it up this way. He said, thus for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Interesting. Why would Paul uh, focus on this simple gospel message instead of all the problems of society? Very simple, because the gospel message is at the root of the solution. Um, for example, social issues are not our root problem. They are the result of our problem. It's sort of like saying, my problem is I have emphysema. No, my problem is that I've smoked all my life. The result is emphysema. There's no policy in our government that's going to stop crime as much as we try. It can curb it, but it can't solve it. That's a heart issue. Curbing behavior is definitely what the government should be doing, but it's not the solution to peace on earth. I think about the Christmas angel that told the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to men. They were announcing the birth of a person, not the birth of some government program. And this isn't a message about government, but it is a message about peace. How do we have peace? Peace on earth is great, but it is not something we can get our arms around, and it's certainly not something that's going to happen until the world gets its arms around Christ. But what about peace in our own hearts? Because again, we tend to look at the results of our true problem as the problem. Our behavior, for example. But our behavior is focused, comes from our heart. And our heart is the main issue. How do we have peace with God? Let's look together at Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus. Ah. Who cares about Leviticus? Well, it's in our Bible, and it's not just that we're doing due diligence and, you know, so, sort of soldiering through the Bible books, but we are looking at Leviticus because if we think about what the book of Hebrews says about the Old Testament, particularly the law, um, the law is a shadow of the substance that was to come, and that substance is Christ. So when we look at these offerings in Leviticus, remember that they are all a shadow. Jesus is casting the shadow, 
and the shadow of Christ we see in the Old Testament, it, it points forward to him. I just finished reading in my annual trek through the Bible uh, the book of Ezekiel. That's another, uh, like Leviticus, you, it, there are times that you just turn the page and trust that it's going to be worth it. But one of the things that uh, really came to light for me this time through Ezekiel is I'd always sort of scratched my heads over the part of Ezekiel that talks about the future kingdom of God, particularly that, I mean, the temple looks great, and it's going to be great, but then there's sacrifices in the future temple. I mean, still future temple, like when Jesus returns at the second coming, sets up his kingdom on earth, rebuilds the temple, and rules on this planet for a thousand years, there will be sacrifices. Whoa, wait a minute, why? I mean, Jesus was the final sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice, right? But remember, in Hebrews, it says that the, that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. All of that is a shadow of what was to come. So just as in the Old Testament, those sacrifices and the ones that we'll look at here in Leviticus don't remove sin, they pointed ultimately to the one who would. So the sacrifices that are coming in the kingdom, they have no efficacy. They don't have a, a, a relationship to our sin, but they're like the shadow going the other way, still pointing back to Christ. They will be a memorial, much like we do in our communion. We do it in memory of Jesus. So that was helpful. Leviticus chapter 3, we've looked at a couple of offerings in the first two chapters. First chapter looked at the burnt offering and answered the question, how can a sinner be accepted by a God who is holy? Answer, uh, God provides a substitute, a sacrifice dies in our place. Then chapter 2, how should a person who is thus accepted by God live before the Lord? And the, the offering that we saw there focused on the, uh, that we give our lives and the best of our possessions to God the grain offering. So now in chapter 3, we come to an offering called the peace offering, and it had a completely different purpose. How can a person who is thus in a right relationship with God enjoy peace with God? Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at this offering and its implications for us in our lives. We read in verse 1, Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he is going to offer it out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. So let's pause there and talk for a second about this offering. This peace offering was not required. It was optional. It was an optional offering. It provided a way for you to give above and beyond so that you could express your gratitude for having peace with God or having your, your uh, being right with God as a result of the sacrifices in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the peace offering was interesting. Part of it was burned on the altar to God. Part of it was given to the priests to eat. And part of it you would eat with everyone that happened to be, the, be there in the courtyard that day. So there were def different people participating in this peace offering. And it was always something that people enjoyed because it was like barbecue time. It was, it was a time to come together and to eat the best of the meat from your flock. 
I had a friend years ago who asked his daughter, uh, the four-year-old daughter, what love is. And uh, this little girl said uh, that love is eating with God. And then he went further and he said, well, what does God eat? And she said, fruit mostly. (laughs) Oh, so cute. And except, she said she learned that in Sunday school. Except for the fruit part, uh, maybe, maybe God does eat mostly fruit, and I don't know. But except for that, uh, she was right on the money, because eating together always shows a relationship. And this communal meal of the peace offering, when something was offered to God on the altar, I mean, it was dedicated to God, but then when the priests would eat, the priest represented God. And for the priest to eat represented that you were having fellowship with God. The peace offering was also called, you may even have it translated in your Bible, a fellowship offering. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. If you ask somebody to lunch, it has nothing to do with the food. It has everything to do with the fellowship. You ask somebody to lunch, not because you care about the meal. It's like, hey, let's have coffee. Who cares about the coffee? It's not about coffee. It's about the time together. But at the same time, if there's somebody you don't like, you're not going to go up to them and say, hey, let me take you out to lunch. No. Not at all. Because it's about fellowship. It's not about food. And so food, having a meal with somebody in the Bible as well as today, but in the Bible, it focused on everything's okay. We're having a meal because we're in fellowship with one another. That's what the peace offering did. The first offerings you gave to God, you didn't get any of it. But the peace offering, you got to participate. You got to eat part of that because God, you were in fellowship with God. You were eating a meal with God. So this, this word, this Hebrew word for peace offering, as I said, also could be translated fellowship offering. It, it described a peaceful relationship, and there was a graphic picture of why they had it. We were told... Uh, that you, this animal has to die. In fact, this is what we read in verse 2. Verse 2, he shall lay his hand, meaning the worshiper, shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. So you laid your hand on the animal. This, this was a symbolic representation that this animal was you. That, that this animal is dying a death that you should have deserved. And the point is that nobody can approach God without forfeiting life except through God's grace and providing a sacrifice. How do you have peace with God? It comes through a sacrifice, a sacrificial death. Now, keep your place here in Leviticus, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And Dave, Dave, this is where I'll need that photo, if you don't mind. I was walking through the mall uh, two, three weeks back, and I always like to find a bookstore. If there's a mall, it better have a bookstore, because that's usually why I like to go, uh, if I'm by myself. When I go with Kathy, we do lots of other stuff as well. <laughs> but we always try to at least make our way through the bookstore uh, just because it's fun. I just like the smell of books. But anyway, I did more than smell this time around. I went up to, I walked in, and I walked right in, and I saw this 
uh, section that says self-transformation. And I took this picture of it, and there was this lady. You can see her standing there on the right. She was reading all these books. I didn't want her to think I was taking a picture of her. I was kind of waiting for her to not look at me, and I snapped the picture real quick. But self-transformation. And I walked up and read this whole shelf. This whole shelf on the left-hand side, there's actually three sections, but the one, and I didn't get the section on the right. But the, the section on the left-hand side is all tarot cards. And I sort of had to refresh myself on what a tarot card is. We typically think about it as uh, you know fortune-telling, but it's more than that. The tarot cards promise to provide insight to your higher self, quote, an awareness of what you already know deep within. The next shelf over, so the, the center s- shelf, oh, you're actually giving me a tour here, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> that, that shelf, the center shelf, uh, had titles, and I wrote some of these titles down. Listen to this. Uh, the Magic of Astrology. This is Your Destiny. The Literary Witches. And then the final shelf, which I don't have a photo of, but it's to the right there, says these, has these titles. Trust Your Vibes. Becoming Supernatural. Ask and it is given, learning to manifest your desires. Vibes from the Other Side. The Secret Teaching of All Ages. Speaking with Nature. And then there was also a book on making contact with aliens. <laughs> and this is all under the section of self-transformation. And this is a bookstore whose name you would know. Now, we could all say, oh, that's just terrible. And it is. But not for the reasons we initially think. It is a terrible solution to a universal problem of people yearning for something outside themselves as the solution. The irony is the tarot cards point you back inside yourself to more frustration. I mean, I'm the problem. Otherwise, I wouldn't be at the self-help bookstore. (laughs) People are desperate for a solution to the lack of peace they have in their hearts. And the world has many options. All of these titles point you to look within, except for the aliens. Um, I thought about uh, how it'd be probably more helpful for people browsing the bookstore if I got out a big Sharpie marker and and scratched out self-transformation and wrote self-destruction. But I didn't. I left it there. So you're in Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 2. This is the Bible's solution to that emptiness we feel inside. Romans 4, this is about Abraham. Uh, Paul is going through in, in the book of Romans, the first three chapters, he shows how we cannot be saved in the eyes of a righteous God by living a righteous life because we don't live a righteous life. It has to be by grace through faith. And he gives an example of Abraham who did this. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul quotes Moses in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says Abraham believed God, and the the Greek text has the word believed right out front. It's, It's for emphasis. That faith is the basis by which Abraham 
gained righteousness. Look at verse 21, same chapter. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised our Lord from the dead. Now, notice in these verses a couple of things. How were people in the Old Testament saved when they'd never heard of Jesus? All these things were a shadow that pointed to Christ ultimately who would come. So for Abraham, we are told in verse 21 that he was fully assured of what God had promised. God promised Abraham a son and that this would happen supernaturally, and it did. And Abraham believed that promise. He believed God, and his faith credited it to Abraham's righteousness. So Abraham's faith in what God said credit was, was all it was necessary to credit Abraham with righteousness. But then Paul says, now, the same is not only true for Abraham, but it's also true for us, but we have a different object of our faith. Verse 24, those who believe in Jesus, our Lord, uh, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And then verse 25, you know, this is one of my favorite verses in the universe. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That Jesus died for our sins and he was raised to show that our sins were paid for because of our justification. Next verse. Don't let the chapter break through you. The very next verse. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus died for us, in light of the fact that he rose to show that our sins are paid for, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God comes through a solution of the sin problem. Now, we're going to do a little illustration up here. I thought about the best way to do this without injuring anyone, and I think we can do it. So, Jim, come on up here. Harry, come on up here. And I'd like uh, all of you up to Rex. So, Clyde, you and Suzanne can stay seated. All of you up to Rex, come on up here. Use the step. Don't fall off. Please don't fall. <laughs> Including you, Rex. Including you. Come on up. Everybody. If you can do it without falling down, I would love to have you come up. <laughs> Yes, please don't fall down. All right, this is looking good. Okay, so Jim, you and Harry sort of stand right there facing us. Perfect. All right, and all of you are right there. Okay, so here's what the, what, how this illustrates. Here's Wayne. I, and let, we're going to say that Jim is God the Father, no resemblance necessary, <laughs> and Harry is God the Son, Jesus. Okay, you okay with that, Harry? All right. Sounds good. All right. And Yeah, get on the right side. Get on the right side. That is right hand. Okay. Thank you. Theologians in every group. All right. And so what are all these people? These people are my sins. Not personally. 
though Rex, I, I could tell stories about Rex. <laughs> but le- so let's, let's do this. Rex, come stand over here. And I don't live very long in life, and all of a sudden I've sinned. So I got, I got one sin right here. Now, don't fall off, brother. Right there. And uh, between me and God. That's not much, but, you know, Rex is a little tough to get around. And the rest of you, you can understand the drill. The more I sin, come on over here and just line up. Yes. There you go. I have a whole line of sins between me and God. There's no way around. Now, I have a lot of good deeds as well. In fact, the whole rest of you guys represent the good deeds in my life. These are my sins. But here's the thing. No matter how many good deeds I have, I still have sins. And I can't get rid of them. There is no way that I can get to God because of my sins. Can we sacrifice Rex? (laughs) You're mixing the metaphor here, brother. So what can we do? You know exactly what to do. Usher them away. Would you do that? God the Son is going to take my sins away. away. So please do that. I can't take them away. They like so help, help. We get to go sit down. Yes, go, go sit down. <laughs> and you're doing that by Harry ushering you out. <laughs> exactly. Out, so out. God the Son took out, out. all of my sins and put them back, took them away. Now, that's what we just read. Jesus did well. No, I'm not done with I'm not done with you. Actually, Harry, you could you could you could go. Yeah. You have ascended. So that's fine. That's fine. Now, I want you to notice there's nothing now between me and God. Jesus has taken all of my sins away. Right? There's nothing. And I, now I have peace with God. So Welcome. Now that's a simple illustration. But it does a whole lot more than just saying it. It lets you see it. And in that way, let me read once again Romans 4:25 and 5:1. That Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He took all of our sins away. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The solution isn't within ourselves. It is outside of ourselves. The problem is our sin. Jesus removed it. So here's the first principle that we can get from our text today is that we can enjoy peace with God because of the shed blood of Jesus. We enjoy peace with God because of the shed blood of Jesus. This offends our culture, which is why we have all these ridiculous solutions in the bookstore that point us to our own, as to our own solution. To say that someone has to die or that something has to die or that I deserve to die because of my sin, I mean, all right, you mean slap my hand for my sin, but death? I mean, real death? That's going a little far, isn't it? 
In a world that makes bestsellers out of books like I'm okay, you're okay, the truth is a tough sell. After all, who would buy a book that says, I'm totally depraved, you're totally depraved? <laughs> well, the, the irony is the best-selling book of all time begins with that very theme. The Bible begins that way, showing our complete inability. Total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad off as we can be, that we're as bad as we can be. It means that we're as bad off that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to earn a position with God. It shows that we need Jesus Christ. All of our sin was placed on him. So I think a better book title would be, I'm not okay, you're not okay, but that's okay. <laughs> I like that title. Why? Because all of our sin has been placed on Christ. Now, we would all agree with that. But then there are those moments where we walk out of Sunday school feeling all spiritual. Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, whenever it is, or, or you're in the silence of your own mind, lying in the darkness of your bed, and you remember your sins. And you can begin to feel like, you know what? I'm not so sure that my sins are forgiven. I'm not so sure that I have peace with God. Like most of them are forgiven, but there's some that I think God's going to make me pay for. I did this silly illustration up here to give you a visual that Jesus took them all away. Not just the, the sort of bad ones, even the really bad ones. And here's the irony, is that Jesus took away sins we don't even know about. He takes away bad motives as far as our punishment. All our sins placed on Christ. Therefore, we can have peace with God. Real peace. Real peace. Not just fake peace. Turn back to Leviticus, if you would. Leviticus 3. The peace offering was placed on top of the burnt offering. You would never offer an, an optional peace offering without first offering a burn offering. And it, you did this because you got to see that peace comes at the price of shed blood. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice is pointed forward to Christ, and now Christ has paid for that. Leviticus 3, look at verse 3. From the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all of the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall offer it up in smoke on the altar of the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Soothing aroma meaning God's pleased. So what's all this mean? I mean, and should we care what it means? Well, it's here for a reason. And it is a little challenging to, to sort of look at this and go, okay, so how do I apply that? But we look in other places throughout the Scripture, and we can understand, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, why this is significant. Three things, we're told here, were burned on the altar. The fat, the kidneys, the liver. So what? Well, the fat 
usually is something that we try to avoid, both in our food and on our bodies. And if we've got it on our bodies, we do our best to hide it because we don't want fat and we don't want people to see fat. I always get a chuckle every time I read Mariah Carey's quote. Listen to this. Mariah Carey said, (laughs) she said, whenever I watch TV and I see those poor starving kids all over the world, I can't help but cry. I mean, I'd love to be skinny like that, but not with all those flies and death and stuff. (laughs) See, the ideal body today is skinny. It's almost emaciated if you look at some of the models. But what, when we look at museum paintings, have you been to a museum like have paintings like hundreds of years old, and you see like kings and queens and people that are really well off? They're kind of chunky. <laughs> and they're chunky because it shows that they have a life of ease. They don't have to work you know, in the fields and get all skinny. They can eat as much as they want. And so to be a little chunky represents you are exceedingly blessed. That's the idea with giving the fat here to God. The fat represents the best. It represented prosperity. It represented blessing. Um, we, we, we can think of the, we have the reference to the fat of the land, leaving off the fat of the land, meaning it's the very best. And um, so kidneys and, and, and internal organs, what in the world is this referring to? This is a reference to our emotions. These represented our emotions, and we see this throughout the scriptures. So I'm not just sort of pulling this out of my pocket. We talk today about, uh, we have the same phrases. We say, our heart is stirring, or our stomach is turning, or churning, or something is gut-wrenching. We talk about our emotions in terms of these organs. And if you think about it, sometimes when you hear about something or you feel something, you feel it in these organs. And so it is this representation of even your emotions, you are surrendering to God. You're giving, we we as Christians even talk about giving our heart to the Lord. Well, that'll kill you. What you're saying is you're giving your life to God when you give your heart to God. Well, flip to chapter 7, if you would. The peace offering is mentioned in a couple of spots in Leviticus. Chapter 7 is another spot that gives us a great additional application. Chapter 7, verse 13. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offerings with cake of leavened bread. Of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offerings. Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. So this sacrifice, this optional sacrifice, also carries with it this idea of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The, the Hebrew word is todah. And if you go to Israel and someone is telling you thank you, they're going to tell you todah. Todah still means thank you. And, but here it has the idea of, of, of beyond a simple thank you to um, acknowledging something or praising something for something done. The thanksgiving peace offering, a, a peace offering for thanksgiving. What you would do is while the animal was cooking on the fire, 
you'd all stand around and smell the animal cooking, and you would stand there and you would tell everybody around what God has done for you. You would give thanks. This is what it was called paying your vows. We've heard that phrase, paying your vows. That was when you would stand there while the peace offering was cooking, you would say, here's what God has done. Here's why I'm giving this additional offering today, because I am so grateful for what God has done in my life. And then you would, you would talk about that while the animal was cooking. Maybe you asked God for something. Um, it was just part of who you were as a believer that wanted to give thanks. So this is sometimes called a thank offering. Sometimes it's referred to as a sacrifice of praise. It was this offering. And we also read that cakes were used. They were offered right along with it. And uh, the Old King James has a funny translation for this. The Old King James translates it as the heave offering, which doesn't sound too appetizing, does it? If you're about to eat a meal, let's, let's have a heave offering before this. Well, it doesn't refer to uh, heaving in that sense, but the word that we have translated here in verse 14, contribution, is related to the word to be lifted up. And that's, that's the word heave. You were heaving it or lifting it up toward heaven. It was that part of the offering that, that went to the priest. Have you ever been to uh, a stadium uh, and back before COVID when, um, or a concert or something where they did uh, what's called the wave, you know? <laughs> I almost said, hey, let's do that. But I think I'd throw some backs out today for us to all, all try to stand up and do this. We'd probably have some people on the floor, so we won't be doing that. But just sort of imagine, you know, we would refer to that in our modern day as the wave offering, but this is not, uh, this is not the, the original. The original idea is what the priest's portion of the, of the peace offering was traditionally waved before the Lord as a special act signifying that this was his. Uh, there's other options, other offerings mentioned in Leviticus in this context, a drink offering, or sometimes called a libation offering, was wine that was poured out in the burnt offering and the peace offering while uh, it was cooking. And it was an additional pleasing odor. But the bottom line is that this offering was a time for us to, time for them to give thanks. And uh, while things were cooking, you got to talk about what God had done in your life. And the principle is a timeless one. And it's this, that we should share with others how God has blessed us. We should share with others how God has blessed us. And I love that we do that in our class each week, that we have the praise and, what do you call it, praise and share time, right? It's not praise and prayer time, it's praise and share time, but we do pray as well. But it's a great opportunity for us to stand up, as it were, as the offering is cooking, if you want to think of it that way, and to say, here's what God has done in my life. And uh, it encourages us when we hear what someone else has done, uh, what the Lord has done in someone else's life in our lives as well. I love it. Except we don't eat, you know, uh, meat. We eat donuts. It's kind of a different, <laughs> different altogether. But still, same, same, same idea. When's the last time you shared with someone how much God has blessed you? We are really good at sharing everything that's going wrong. And then we baptize it by calling it a prayer request. And maybe it is. I don't want to demean that. But we need to also have be sharing our blessings with others. Here's what's good in my life, right along with all my prayer requests. 
This offering, though it was voluntary, came with a warning. Look down at verse 19. Verse 19. Also the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to the Lord in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. In other words, you don't just willy-nilly participate in this. You would prepare for this this, uh, celebration. You wouldn't just walk in there and uh, having just touched a corpse. You would be deemed unclean. What does it mean to be unclean? We'll get into that more when we get into Leviticus, because Leviticus gets into it a whole lot more. But it didn't necessarily mean sinful. It just means that you, uh, that a person or a place, it could be a house uh, or a thing, some object, uh, was, was improperly prepared to be in the presence of God. And so it had to be purified. You didn't just do it willy-nilly. If the rule was strict, and we're told here that if you didn't follow the rule, you would be cut off from your people. What does that mean? Well, parallel passages talk about this as being cut off from the land of the living. So it could be a real reference to your life being taken. But here's the thing. Who's going to know? Nobody's going to know. You could walk in there unclean, and no one's going to know except God. Now, we won't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, we have a parallel event that occurs for us as believers called communion. We also take part in a communal meal together, just like the peace offering and fellowship offering. And we do it in a a similar way in that we eat what represents the body of our sacrifice. It's the same idea as the peace offering. And to take part in communion is a testimony that you are in communion with God. You are in relationship with God, just like the peace offering. So it's definite connection. But in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't need to turn there. Just listen what Paul says in verse 27. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself or herself, it goes both ways, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And then he goes on to say, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and even sleep, even die. Uh, You're cut off from the land of the living. It's the same idea. You don't just willy-nilly take communion. You don't just willy-nilly walk into the presence of God and say, I'm in fellowship with God, if you're not. So it it was a celebration, but it was something to be taken seriously. All right, one more place I'd like you to turn as an illustration of this in the Bible, and it's a beautiful one. Look at 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. We looked at Manasseh some weeks back when we were doing our series on the kings, but there's something in Manasseh's life that is relevant to our text in Leviticus today. Remember Manasseh, he was the longest reigning king of Judah, the southern kingdom. 
And he was a rascal. Reigned 55 years. And he was the one that sort of sealed the deal on the exile happening. He was an evil king. He did evil things. And we're told here in Second Chronicles 33, verse 6, this is like the worst thing. He says, verse 6, He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So Manasseh was a bad guy and did bad things and clearly was not walking with God, even knew the Lord. But then look down at verse 10 at God's grace. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he, he, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh was truly converted. How do we know that he was truly converted? Well, the Bible tells us, but we also see it in his actions. If you look down at verse 16, we read that he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Why is that significant? Because remember, the peace offering was optional. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't just checking the boxes. Manasseh had truly converted. And he was doing it in such a way that he offered peace offerings, meaning that as the offering burnt, Manasseh stood there and said, let me tell you what great things God has done in my life. <clears throat> I read this to you and have us all read it together to show you that if God can save Manasseh, he can save anybody. If God can save Manasseh, he can save uh, a Saul of Tarsus who says, I am the chief of sinners. And by the way, he can save you and me. And in the quietness on your bed or walking down the road or driving down the highway when you're alone and you have those moments, God, am I really saved? Will you really forgive me for all that I've done? Manasseh believed it. The scripture teaches it so that you don't have to wonder, but that you can know for sure. Jesus has taken all your sins away. There's nothing between you and God. You can have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture. Manasseh gives us a beautiful testimony of what's true in his life or was and what is true in our lives as well. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful to you for these shadows that we look at in the Old Testament. Leviticus initially seems like such a dry, dusty, irrelevant book, but the timeless truths that they applied through these offerings 
we see as a shadow pointing us to Jesus Christ, that we can have peace with you, our Father, because of Christ, taking away all of our sins, even our sinful motives that we aren't even aware of, have been nailed to the cross and have been removed. Therefore, we have peace with God, real peace. How grateful we are, Lord. Grateful that in those times that we take communion, that we can truly know that we are in fellowship with you and we can celebrate it with other believers. Uh, and, And the times that we have here in class or among other friends where we can say, let me tell you what God has done in my life, where we can share the goodness of God here in the land of the living. And we're grateful also, Father, for this peak once again to Manasseh's life to remind us that if you can save him, then you can save anyone, anyone who will humble themselves and come to the means of forgiveness that is the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're thankful for this reminder today. And as we go forth uh, in this season of Thanksgiving, we provide our own peace offering, our own Thanksgiving offering, and share with others what you've done. And thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Wayne. A reminder, if you want to go to the Christmas party, get your name on the list today before you leave here. So until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.